0: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is the Twilight Show with
1: Nathan Ginn. Borodar Pap Kruisoi Abatawi. Hello everyone. Welcome to Swansea. Welcome to the Twilight Show. With me, Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio, and we have a hot topic for tonight. We have uh, Kat Stern, author of The Excludables, understanding the children we exclude and why, and we are going to be talking about exclusion, getting down to the nitty-gritty of why. Live from Swansea, this
0: is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app, and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with
1: Teachers Talk Radio. Borodar Pab, Hello, everyone. Welcome to Swansea. Welcome just talk radio the twilight show with me nathan Ginn. you might have heard a slight pause in my introduction there i'm sure i heard my tune my jingle slow down like a broken record which i've never heard on digital software before um but yeah through me all of a sudden i'll have to listen back to see if there really is this kind of record slowing down sound right in the middle of my intro who knows maybe it's just my headphones now it's a sunny day in swansea shock horror i know I know every week I normally start with it's raining, it's raining in South Wales, but it's actually sunny out the window to the point where it's coming through the window and blinding my eyes to the point where I've realised this is my first show of the year where I've had the curtains open at this time. So it must be, things are improving, the days are getting longer. Um, As I said in the introduction, we're joined by Kat Stern, author of The Excludables. I think Kat is here with us. Kat?
2: Hi Nathan, can you hear me?
1: Yep, you are coming through uh, loud and clear. Um, maybe just a little bit closer to the microphone if you can.
2: Okay, how's that?
1: Oh, perfect, even better. Fantastic. Well, um, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's lovely to be invited and Boreadar to you too. Oh,
1: well, there we go. See Borodar, We are spreading Camryg, spreading the Welsh language as we speak. Now, where are you at the moment? I forgot to ask. We should...
2: I'm based in London, North London, uh, and I was teaching up in uh, Redbridge today where it has been pouring with rain and uh, Saharan dust as well.
1: Do you know what? I heard about the Saharan dust. I've been looking at it. You know, there are um, people who I know on social media who are in places like Portugal and they were saying about this, this sky. I haven't noticed it myself I have to say I haven't noticed the Saharan dust um, but uh, I've been more shocked by it being sunny here in Wales which which <laughs> isn't I, I I sometimes am face up against the window sort of saying to people it's raining there's rivers running down the road and they're looking at me like I'm like I'm crazy and they're just like yeah no it rains here that's that's what it, does. <laughs> it rains um, now as I said you know when we get started we have you know a guest on the show, we get talking it's good to get to know you a little bit to to kind of introduce so why don't you tell us first of all a little bit about what you currently do
2: uh, well right now i am a behavior consultant in secondary educational settings and that's across mainstream and alternative provision um I'm currently working with some wonderful schools uh, working with a pupil referral unit out in buckinghamshire in particular um and uh Uh, I guess the reason I'm talking to you tonight is that I've just had a book published uh, with John Catt Educational called The Excludables uh, From Mainstream Classroom to Prison Education so it's really about pulling together data and pulling together research and, and really looking at kind of what I've seen across my journey through my career from uh, working very very closely with children who are at risk of exclusion in mainstream and then seeing almost you know the extreme end of the continuum in a, in a young offenders institute in the educational setting there so yes that's what I'm currently doing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, and I think it will be really interesting for people to hear. And I should say, you know, we are live. So if you're listening live in the studio, you can uh, text us your questions in. You can message us on Twitter. I will see them all as long as you tag in Teachers Talk Radio or tag me at Lesson Copy in Twitter. Um, Or, um, yeah, put them live in the chat. Um, And it is, I think, going to be really interesting because whilst everyone will have heard of exclusions, I think, it is still quite a... It's a, a small amount, you know. There, there, there is certainly an amount of exclusions going on, and we'll talk maybe about the different kinds of things that are happening. Um, but it might not be something that every class teacher has had an intimate dealing with, maybe.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, firstly, we should probably just clarify that, I mean, I think when you and I are talking about exclusions, we are referring to permanent exclusion, um, because everything else now is called a suspension. But I think um, I think what people are less aware of is that there are other ways that children are uh, removed from mainstream schooling, uh, some of which are not in the guidance and are illegal. Uh, things like off-rolling or threatening parents, you know, basically saying we will permanently Exclude your child unless you take them off roll, which it is a parent's prerogative, obviously, to educate their child at home. But no schools should be putting pressure on parents to do that. So when you see a figure like, uh, I mean, typically my work kind of ran up just pre pandemic, so uh, the percentage would be zero point one percent of children uh, excluded from uh, secondary education, zero point two, kind of if you look at secondary, but actually. That number is not giving you the full picture, I guess that's what I'm saying. So, you know, as well as I do, there are other routes such as managed moves. A managed move is not an illegal way of removing a child from mainstream, Um, but there are uh, unfortunately other methods which are used to hide some of those children from the data.
1: Yeah, and hopefully, you know, when we get really into the nitty gritty, you talk a lot about um, belonging in the book, and 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 words like uh, such, like particularly around um, gypsy Roma traveller um, children. And in my experience, and I have worked in in schools that you know by all means follow the rules, but you hear about other situations where you receive children from other schools, and certainly there there are other ways that people will have been it made clear that maybe this isn't the school for you or as you say with home education that maybe it might you know that there, there's a lot of gray area there but when we're talking about those numbers you know um, 0.01% or, or, or even the, the higher number for secondary we're talking in a, in a secondary school there might be one child a year and for most class teachers then this child they might have heard of maybe but a, a child has disappeared that they might not ever know. And so I think there's possibly a, not a vacuum, I would say, but there's, there's a gap there that people might not understand the process, might not understand what's happened, might hear a lot of different things. And also we'll get on to talking about, you know, it can be an emotive topic as well. But before we do, I just wanted to check in and find out just, you know, for the listeners and myself as well. Um, your career journey up to this point and I was asked this myself Um, I was talking to some PGCE students doing a a talk for them um, this week and they asked me about how I got into what I'm doing you know like career advice and I I had to kind of say to them it's it's haphazard for me at best I'm not like I haven't had a career trajectory for want of a better word I've been all over the shop but what about yourself how did you sort of end up becoming a behavioral consultant?
2: Um, well, there's no, if there is a simple route into that, I'm not aware of it. Um, you know, education is not an area where there is a ton of money floating around. Uh, and to be honest with you, behavior is often an area where people kind of assume that all knowledge is in house. Uh, which is not always accurate, I think. Um, so in terms of becoming a behavior consultant, I stepped out of my role in mainstream because I wanted to do something more strategic. Um, and consultancy actually gives me a lot of freedom to do that. So I get to be a part of some really exciting projects. However, that is quite a leap of faith. Um, it is a big jump to go from uh, you know, a full-time uh, career on on a decent salary uh, to then go okay um you know here we go ground zero again what can I launch um how can I make some progress and how can I get my foot in the door and start working with schools and that is a real challenge I mean you know I'm very grateful that everyone who I've consulted for has has requested more work so in that sense I guess you know I believe I have a good product but you know it's very difficult to to introduce yourself into schools and say you know what it might be worth paying for a little bit of you know a second opinion or a second pair of eyes on your systems and that kind of thing so uh, I, I also chose to do it at a particularly bad time uh, so seven months I think before the actually no it was nine months before the first lockdown of the pandemic uh, was when I became self-employed <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, not not ideal timing, but I suppose, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe if there are people listening, that you know, they maybe want to comment on this. But certainly, I, I get feelings from my teacher friends that maybe, you know, ba- there is a growing concern around behaviour in schools post pandemic, um, and yeah. you know, uh, I'm you know, I've had lots of reasons for it, and I'm not sure that what I quite understand or, or, or really know myself but certainly there's a feeling out there I feel at the moment that maybe something isn't quite sitting right.
2: I think for sure I'm definitely uh, working with schools that I wouldn't have expected to work with before and probably wouldn't have expected to ask for the kind of support they're asking for you know you're talking about Uh, private schools who've had rising levels of self-harm in their boys um you're talking about schools that that are dealing with issues that some of which they haven't dealt with before so much and also other schools that i think there's a volume issue and they're being slightly overwhelmed with the with what has has, is happening as we're in this kind of transition phase i guess um at this stage of the pandemic so i mean I think like you, I definitely have noticed uh, a lot of things on social media, also teachers saying that they're overwhelmed. You know, it's Mm. not just the students who've been through such a hard time. Um, And that, I mean, one of the themes within the book is that that changes our behavior as well. It's not going to just change theirs. It's going to change ours. And it's also going to change how we interpret the behavior around us.
1: Yep. And I I was just about to say, um, I've got that highlighted. I was just flicking through the book, as I say, as, as one of the things, um, uh, I can't can't find it right now. It's not one of the ones I think, but yeah, certainly how we perceive things uh, when we're stressed can, can change what we think. And, and and I know you talk about that in the book. Um, and certainly, you know, I always say about dealing with behaviour, um, which is not my own saying, but someone once said to me is that we struggle to co-regulate and help children uh, if we're not regulating ourselves. And and I think probably a lot of that is is going on where people are, you know, struggling to regulate themselves and really. The world is a scary place, and so it's harder to support children in in, in managing their own behaviour.
2: It is. I mean, the, the research I kind of put in one of the chapters is actually to do with judgment and how we mm. interpret other people's behaviour. And uh, stress affects us and affects the way it affects our judgment in sometimes quite subtle and subconscious ways. And there is a ton of research from lots of different fields really about this. And one of the things that it seems to be coming up is that to judge or attribute someone's behavior to their disposition, i.e. there's a fault in their character and that's why they've acted in that way. is very easy and very quick. Um, And because it is very easy and very quick, it becomes a bit of a fallback when we are stressed. So we tend to rely on on judgments of other people um, that are based on their disposition or their character when we're actually more distracted or stressed ourselves. Now, if we need to consider their situation, you know, the complexities of what is actually going on with that young person, that requires more of us. It requires more energy. It requires literally more activity in the prefrontal cortex of our brain. It takes evidence. It takes us carefully unpicking what has happened. And uh, it is that is so much harder when we are stressed, whether you're the classroom teacher who's, who's got to deal with an issue on the spot. You know, and you're trying to manage your own emotions and you're trying to provide a reasonable response in that situation. Or whether you are a senior leader or a head teacher who's making an extremely complex decision about whether to apply, you know, a, a, a very a serious sanction to a young person. How stressed we are really does matter.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I think... Um that is you know incredibly important at these times for staff to be considering particularly if there is a you know a kind of spiraling um consideration there of it happening now i did want to say as well sort of in in this little introduction part is us uh, how how would i phrase this that um when we talk about exclusions and particularly when we talk about maybe some of the um you know, if we were to talk about some of the other practices that may go on or, or go on and people's opinions of them, um, it can be quite an emotive topic for people. And and certainly, you know, we'll talk about the, the differences in opinions between when people, and in the book you talk about, um, when it's their own children or when it's other people's children that we're talking about excluding. Um, but even for teachers thinking that they might, you know... It's a hard thing to, to consider that a, a child might be, I don't know, past your reach, might be past your helping. It's it's emotive, I guess, is what I'm asking.
2: Yeah, I think as soon as you say the word exclusions, it becomes highly emotive. And I believe that's because ultimately exclusion is a moral judgment. And moral issues are complex for all of us. And they they bring up very, very strong emotions in people. I mean... I mean, when it comes to exclusions, sometimes I think the debate in education is a little bit limited. It's a kind of like, should they happen? Uh, most people, and certainly survey evidence would say, most teachers believe that they are um, a tool that needs to be kind of in the arsenal of, of, of sanctions, and you know, sorry to use kind of warlike language, but um, certainly believe that they are something that should be available for schools. Um, but parents, overwhelmingly. Endorse exclusions, but parents, you know, also um, moderately endorse corporal punishment. So, uh, parental surveys are not a, a great guide for where we as a school system should be heading. I think there are important conversations about who we're excluding. Um, and that is really the crux of the book you know, the title, the excludables is, is an attempt, my attempt to a deep look at who we're excluding and not just who we're excluding, but when you pick out these themes, how are these themes affecting behavior? So the whole book really started in terms of data on the basis of looking at, you know, four bits of data. We're talking free school meals. So essentially are like educational measure of poverty, uh, race. Uh, mental health and special educational needs but we've known that uh, these are issues within the children that we're excluding for a really long time these are entrenched problems so what I try to do beyond that is really go okay so how is poverty affecting behavior what research is out there that actually links these two things together how is mental health affecting behavior and then look at other things that underpin these or are connected so there's a chapter on bias, there's a chapter on trust, there's a chapter on uh, resilience, um, stress and trauma and, and kind of the last chapter in the book is called Who Guards the Guardians and that's really about you know, the evidence about what it means to be an adult, the adult, the responsible adult when you are working with highly vulnerable children, um, whatever role you're playing, whether you're playing the role, you know whether you're the school nurse or whether you are the executive head teacher.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, and hopefully we're going to get a chance to unpick each of those things in turn as we as as we go through. Um, and I don't know, do you see, or is an exclusion, and this is maybe a way um, to, to uh, is reaching the point of exclusion a failure in some form of whether you know the teachers, the system it's hard to take i guess for people to see that is 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 it a failure is it something that's natural is it a, a logical cause and effect
2: i mean i've never <laughs> that's a really good question i've never thought of it in that terms exactly um i think at a structural level it would be hard to finish all the data and all the research that have put in this book and then say that it the system is not failing mm. um so on that level, I would say, yes, there is at this moment in time, failure built into the system. Um, what I would say is that what we do know about human behavior and its extremes, um, I don't know if it's possible. I don't imagine it's possible to eliminate exclusion. Um, that's, you know, essentially, occasionally we exclude people from society, you know, and I've worked in one of those environments. So it, it, it is extremely rare now, quite rare for children to be incarcerated. The numbers have dropped significantly over the last decade. Um, But that was a political choice, you know? Um, And what I mean by that is that we had one of the highest incarceration rates for children um, in Europe. I think we were the highest in Europe and the fifth highest in the world. And uh, over time there was a deliberate um, strategic effort to avoid incarcerating children. So we now have far, far, far fewer children in prison. In the same way, exclusion is in a sense a a political decision just within the education sector. And uh, I'm not saying I can pluck a figure from the air and tell you how much exclusion we should have. Um, I certainly in my career have experienced a tiny number of occasions where uh, I endorsed the exclusion happening and would still endorse that exclusion happening. Um, but the vast majority of my time working in an internal alternative provision within a mainstream secondary school, my impression was that we were excluding the most vulnerable children and for the wrong reasons. The vast majority of those children were not dangerous. Um, and so that really is what this book is about and where it's come from, because there actually there is no doubt that we are excluding the most vulnerable children.
1: Um and I wanted to add on to that and I you know I'm just going to read a little bit out from a article from um sorry from the Guardian uh just about and it's a personal account from a and this is from a parent of a child who was a primary school child and when we talk about it being built into the system this was um a child who um who, who was in year moved into year one so a very young child um and the mum um who was called Amanda Bates um talks about his exclusion from his new school and says the head teacher was trying to help Bates recognises because the exclusion would trigger more support but it was devastating and in quotes there I think it was shameful that it takes a permanent exclusion for children to be supported she says and hmm. <laughs> I would also possibly <laughs> no. add in 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 you know in my experience I have heard phrases such as you know, thresholds we often talk about and reaching a threshold and there being uh, a such like, and whether it be um, built in at a, a system level or, you know, possibly, and I'm not talking about a moral level, here, but, although a moral element to it, but um, the, a financial level, maybe about someone looking at, you know, how do we fund? What do we support? But that, that's a pretty shocking statement I would feel.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it confuses me when I hear that things that, and actually in some of the um, uh, studies that I've read, one of them was a a statement like that was coming from a head teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. There is, there is no requirement for any form of publicly available physical health support, mental health support, speech and language, uh, you know, support. There is no requirement for a child to be excluded from school before they access that support. Mm. So if you've got a child in alternative provision they are they are going to be referred to the same people as if they are in mainstream school um i think that's a bit of a a, a myth in education it, it that should never ever ever be the reason for an exclusion i mean it shouldn't be the reason for an exclusion anyway the only reason that you exclude a child from school is uh, purely because of some kind of anti-social action uh, but, yeah. you know, it's really hard. And also, you're right, um, people do tend to think about exclusion as mainly a secondary school issue, which it is. Um, however, there are four-year-olds permanently excluded from school. There's a very small number of them, but they are there.
1: Yeah, and, I, you know, I would say as a, as a primary school deputy head and I have been in uh, discussion meetings about the possible permanent exclusion of a year three pupil, uh, and I have been in, in, you know, in meetings around that. So, you know, in in my experience, that it does go down. You know, into so I say go down. It does exist. It lower down the schools, um, in in into the key stage one and key stage. Uh, to existence now I'm just conscious we've got some texts coming in so I'm going to read them out this is from TSCW who just says um, I think the community can be failing too although typing that makes me feel uncomfortable uh, gaps in provision in school communities families etc some schools really struggle with balancing all of this not every school has a massive budget throw all the resources needed to support the children on their rule role, sorry. and uh, Not all schools uh, support each other too. And then I think in response to the the sort of reaching threshold type comments, they've said uh, 100% it's a cop out. Now, that's, that's a really tough decision to make and possibly not one that we, you know, maybe when we get to the end and we, we start talking about the ideals of, you know, what, what we might think a, a, a better way of considering it might be. But, you know, we've started off rather heavy, I'm afraid. And I know we are talking about exclusion, but talking about a system where people are having to consider if they have the budget to meet a child's need is is quite a tough one.
2: It is. And and that's essentially why the chapter on special educational needs and disabilities in my book is actually really heavily focused on money. And financial resources, because I don't think there's any other area of of educational discourse that is in more agreement than when we're talking about the crisis in SEND funding. And it is heartbreaking for the children. It's heartbreaking for the parents. We have um, a system where they constantly have to take uh, local authorities to tribunal. Ninety-five percent of the time, and win those tribunals, but the whole the whole process is ultimately trying to get the educational provision that their child has been legally allocated. Um, And, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the book is, you know, during the pandemic, you know, people were wringing their hands at the thought of the the learning hours that were lost by children. But there are children with special educational needs who have no educational placement and haven't had for a very long period of time. They're not missing, you know, days, weeks. They're missing months and years. And that's just because a placement is not available for them that suits their needs. So there is a crisis in SEND funding, and uh, yeah, definitely, my thoughts are with the the parents having to face those challenges. Uh, some of whom literally have their child at home for no other reason than there is no school place for them.
1: Uh, yeah, and I, you know, and I would also say in there, you know, you've you've already mentioned this idea of you know there is really you know uh, exclusion for a very uh, specific, and talking about the the actual incidents that have happened for those children. Um, and I should say that, that, you know, even recently in, in, in the County I work in the local authority, um, has just been taken to tribunal before excluding a child that was found to, um, not have been an appropriate decision to make, um, because they had taken into consideration, um, broader social trends whilst making their decision. Um, and, uh, yeah, but they had excluded a child. And unfortunately, I think, you know, this is one of the, the, the things we get to. There may be a system of recourse, there may be tribunals. And of course, you can um, challenge it with the governors. At most schools, that would be an appropriate course of action. But at that point, the, a lot of the damage has already been done.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to be challenged on this because I'm not a legal expert, but my understanding of it is uh, if you appeal a permanent exclusion and win, the school is not required to reinstate the child uh, at no point. In fact, there is they can pay essentially a fine and still refuse to reinstate the child so I remember hearing a podcast and uh, one of the legal experts on it one of the lawyers on it basically said look this is like one of the only areas of law where you can win an appeal and get nothing in recourse get nothing in return so um that is an issue to me I'm not sure why schools would be so outside a kind of independent legal judgment um Mm -hmm. And I certainly
1: know in the book, you also talk about the fact that that can can, um, swing the data set somewhat, should I say, you know, um, people, if people know there's nothing in it for them, or they have accepted, you know, this, this this thing that has happened, they're not going to challenge, not every decision gets challenged at tribunal.
2: Exactly. I mean, what's the incentive for parents to give up their time to appeal a permanent exclusion when they cannot force the child, so sort of, cannot force the school to take the child back? But one of the points I was, I was making, which I think you picked up on, is is by that point, the relationship between the school and the family, the relationship between the school and the child, may be so fractured I think is the right word at that point that realistically reinstating them may not be the best option for their education um it's always really you know no one wants to get to that point it's it's always really sad it's often quite difficult you know for schools as well in terms of uh making sure that they've kind of provided everything that they should have provided that they could have provided but actually sometimes you do get into a bit of a my experience, a tick box exercise where you go, right, tick this box, send them off to counselling because they haven't had counselling, uh, put them in the internal AP because we haven't done that, um, stick it with a mentor because we haven't done that, but but actually often the it needs a lot more uh, personal kind of unpicking of what is going on with any particular young person rather than just kind of the kitchen sink, sink approach, throw everything at them. However, I'd also like to kind of, I think it's relevant to this, is that the, the external support that schools need and, and that young people need and that families need in areas like mental health um, and, and special educational needs is just not there and that is nothing to do with the education sector um, the the lack of funding towards cams the the waiting lists uh, that can, can go on for six months the number of referrals that are rejected you know we know that there is a crisis in that sense and uh, schools unfortunately are having to pick up the pieces and families are having to pick up the pieces and uh, it's incredibly hard work and incredibly draining Sometimes it is it is obvious that a child needs, for example, mental health support, and it's very hard to hear that that is not going to happen.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I'll read a, an, another quote from you. Not not that I've spent my whole, you know, past week highlighting your book, but I have. Um, <laughs> but uh, you give a, a, a quote about um, talking about sort of seeing the matrix and and the fact that we are, you know, looking at this across uh, professionals. Um, And, you know, human social behavior is a subject involving brain chemistry, hormones, sensory cues, prenatal environment, early experience, genes, biological and cultural evolution, ecological pressures, and among other things. And that's a quote from Robert um, Sapolsky. Um, It's incredibly complicated when we get down to that, right? This is an incredibly complicated thing to look at.
2: It is, uh, yeah, a wonderful quote by uh, Professor Robert Sapolsky who does some incredible, I'm just going to signpost his YouTube videos there Um, it is incredibly complex and I'm not saying that to try and overwhelm anyone, I think we need to embrace that complexity and not be intimidated by it Um, because actually he has this brilliant analogy where he talks about your your bucket and your bucket is your professional platform, so as educators education is our bucket Um, but the point that he makes is that okay so when we think in terms of buckets you think right so here's the the mental health teams over here and uh here's the lawyers over here and here's the educators and here's the police and you go okay so we've got all these different buckets um actually that isn't a great way of looking at things because there are huge thinking errors which he refers to that occur when you do see the world in those buckets um and actually there is so much Research from different fields that I've tr- I've, that I've tried to showcase in this book, and the reason for that is, is that we we can't remain in our own bucket. We do not research behaviour very much in schools at all. We, when you talk about evidence led interventions and and evidence led behaviour systems, there's almost nothing there. And so, what we can't do is go well. We've got it because we work in education. That doesn't make us necessarily experts on the entirety of human behaviour and so what we do need to do is we absolutely need to draw on evidence from other what would be considered buckets.
1: You know, and I think that is a wonderful place. We do need to go to the ads uh, just quickly. Our wonderful sponsors. Now, when we come back, I'm going to uh, pick into some of the details about what we know. Because I did title uh, the 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 this show tonight as you know, what do we know about exclusion? Because you know, I'm really conscious about that kind of what do we actually know? Because we can talk about um, our feelings, uh, which are incredibly important on this topic, because there are moral elements to it. But also, you know, there's data that we can look at that can tell and maybe not correlation maybe not causation but certainly correlation that we're talking about of unpicking some of the things that and the trends that are going on
2: okay wonderful see you in a bit
1: (laughs) fabulous well we'll see you in a little bit after these adverts see you then
0: articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more
3: are you looking to take your phonics practice forward then little Wondle letters and sounds revised is the program for you created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics little Wondle letters and sounds revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk
0: Introducing Bulb.
3: You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit wwwwitherslackgroupcouk forward slash careers, and be part of our future.
0: Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk
1: Radio. Pab, Abatawi. Hello, everyone. Welcome, to Swansea. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio uh, on this Wednesday Twilight Show. And I am joined by Cat Stern, author of the book The Excludables, and we are talking about exclusion. Uh, welcome back, Cat.
2: Hi, Nathan. Uh, you, uh, you definitely have a glitch in your jingle.
1: Do it. Did you hear it as well? Yeah. There's, there's like, a little, <laughs> like a little, like a little, like a record player slowing down or something
2: yeah just on the o of radio
1: <laughs> i don't know how that's happened like honest this is all digital i promise everyone listening i do not have a record player here or a gramophone that i'm I, i'm rolling and um, there seems seems to be a little little glitch in the system who knows um right so we have had another text in i'm just going to read that out before we sort of move on with the conversation it's from listener uh, tscw who says um it's often a wider issue that Catalyzes the behavior, and schools struggle to balance everything out. Social learning plays into it, and if we only had more provision, a robust multi agency approach, times have changed, and a proper holistic approach needs to be formed to support students and families um, and I would certainly you know personally agree with that myself I know later on I've planned that we talk about you know way you know our dreams for the future I say dreams you know our hopes of things that might be able to change um, I think the one thing that I would add in that we haven't talked about yet is time um, that you know I'll talk about then is that you know I, I myself work with children who are at risk of exclusion or permanent exclusion um, and change takes time and sometimes that means that there will be mistakes along the way of having enough time to change and that's certainly one of my own personal feelings on it um uh, right anyway cat sorry I distract i i, no, do, I, yeah. I go, <laughs> I go, a I good go distraction. off topic. <laughs>
0: um
1: I go off topic now I wanted to start us off with um, and we're going to run through what we know or what you know what you found out, About these kind of different parts about the the exclusion um, conversation. So I'm going to read out a little bit, a quote first, and it says, um, any cursory reading of parental views indicates a preference for removing uh, poorly behaved children from the classroom to minimise disruption to their own child's education. And that's from the Timpson review. And I know you've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but that would suggest then that there is broadly support in society that Children, even possibly just disruptive children, poorly behaved children, rather than uh, specifically violent children, um, that they should be removed for the greater good of the class. Does parents support exclusion.
2: I mean, if you look at survey responses, certainly the ones that I've put in the book, I've not seen any others. There is uh, broadly, you know, there is uh, support from parents, there is support from teachers, um, there is some support from students as well. Um, I mean, there was even some student support for corporal punishment again. So so survey responses are really a, a A little bit of an insight depending on how well they're written um into our thinking or our bias they're not some kind of collective revealing of truth so we need to be very careful when it comes to survey responses um in terms of you know do people think exclusion should happen the reason i brought up that data is actually to introduce the chapter on othering Mm. and um what i find fascinating about this concept of removing a child, you know, for the safety of other children or for the learning of other children or, you know, uh, removing them from that kind of situation. This idea of removal, well, where are they going? They're going to other children and they're going to other educators. There there isn't in this country we educate everyone. It doesn't matter if you're in prison, you still get, if you're a child, a free education. Um, so actually the concept of removal is essentially saying removal from the people who are in front of me and that i think definitely it is a very emotional response it is you know if you if you're saying that you know a child is too dangerous to be around any other children well ultimately the only place for them in our society would be in the secure state um if you remove them from your setting they uh, are going to be in another setting with other children and the same is true you know if you're talking about adults um does that, again, that does not mean that I think uh, there are no situations where a child shouldn't be immediately removed from a school. I think most typically what you can do is you can protect a specific victim. Um, So I think that's important. But actually, you're talking about most of the time people are thinking about other people's children when it's parents, or if they're a child, other children, most children don't predict they're going to be permanently excluded because the majority of them aren't. Uh, So this, this theme of othering does kind of come in. And I think also, you know, understandably from a teacher's point of view, teaching is an incredibly stressful profession Um, and it is very, very understandable and it's easy to empathize with someone going, if this child is not in my room, that makes this lesson better. That makes my life easier. That makes learning better. However, we collectively have a responsibility for all of the children. Uh, what ma- what happens to that child if they're not in your classroom, if they're not in your school, if they're out on the streets? That has an impact on us as a society. So this this concept of removal uh, is one I find a little bit challenging. To be honest, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and I would you know bring it down. And I know we're talking about sometimes the most extreme, but I would say even within this category of people who support, we're not talking about. Um, dangerous there would be people within this uh, you know there are certainly teachers who believe that if a lesson is being disrupted to enough of an extent or some would believe disrupted at all for the learning of others then the, a child should be removed in some way and if they were persistently doing that they would people would be asking for them to be removed entirely where at which point we're talking about some kind of cumulative uh, permanent exclusion or cumulative uh, referral to another school or agency or one of these other type things um happening and, and my understanding of you know reading the room for want of a better word is that there would be people who would support that removing poorly behaved so we're not even talking about um violently behaved throwing things just ones who are consistently and persistently stopping other children from learning
2: I mean, okay, so that word persistent. Okay. When you have uh, issues within any young person where they are persistent and they are impairing, they are impairing to that young person's education, they are impairing to that young person's development and progress. That is generally when you are writing referrals. And those referrals will often end in a diagnosis, for example, of a special educational need Mm -hmm. or a mental health issue or, you know, any kind of range of services that you refer to, uh, you know, whether it's a welfare concern. But there are answers to those issues the, 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 those answers do exist and, and the key to that what you know often when I'm consulting I'm talking about is the behavior persistent is it significantly impairing to to the child um, these are the times when you actually absolutely need to be digging deeper um, we you know this this idea that we judge behavior in the same way we absolutely do not uh, and and it is you know we are deluding ourselves if we think that we we judge behavior objectively um because that is pretty much impossible to do i think as a human being and there's some really interesting studies that kind of you know stick people in, in laboratories and, and kind of demonstrate that you know our judgment is often extremely flawed um there are so, also yeah. yeah go on sorry, let's, no,
1: let's take this opportunity then let's talk about who you know, and I'm skipping around. I said, you know, I did say before this that I, I make a plan for where we would go on the show, and then people call in, people text in, and, and we we go all over the place a little bit. But since we're talking about it, we know a little bit, and you, you know, as I say, you've you've done, you've got the research to kind of back up. Maybe not causation, but we know a little bit about where, who, which groups of children at a lot, lar- you know, on the largest scale when we look at it, who is being excluded. And where there may lie a potential bias because of it, where? So, I guess my question is, who's being excluded most?
2: Okay, so we have a long-standing, disproportionately high exclusion of children who who receive free school meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, those with special educational needs or disabilities within that group, particularly um, social, emotional, mental health problems, uh, although the categories in the Timpson review are not through any fault of his pretty confused. Um, we have different uh disproportional uh, exclusion rates by categories of race or ethnicity. Um, and we have uh yeah so poverty race mental health and send these are the things that we have measured that we know about that the these disproportionalities have existed for for a really long period pretty much for as long as we've been tracking exclusions so these things have been very very resistant to change i would say um If I was going to summarize the excludables, which is essentially, I guess, like the point of the book, um, there was another term that uh, I kind of stumbled across during the research and it's called allostatic load. And allostasis is kind of a a biological term, but it's essentially how our biology changes and adapts in response to stress, whether that is chronic stress, uh, acute stress, kind of overwhelming stress, and if I was going to summarize the excludables, I would say I would predict that they have lives that incur a high allostatic load. And what I mean by that is rather than just looking at those four categories, think of every kind of stress, chronic, overwhelming stress that, that you can imagine. These are lives that are very high in many, many different forms of stress, whether it is crime in their neighborhood, whether it is a... a um, uh, a house that's not fit to live in, you know, these other conditions that we can't really see in the educational data. But when you work closely, which I know you do, and like I have, when you work closely with young people who are at risk of uh, exclusion from school, you see these peppered throughout their lives and throughout their development.
1: Um, and so I get, you know, I guess, uh, does that mean that? I can predict, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, the school in on the poorer side of town is going to have more exclusions than the 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 school on the on the wealthier side of town. Is it is it as simple as that? That's yeah, a really you know, good question. <laughs>
2: So, uh, all data in this book is going to be at a group level. So, first thing I'd say is you can never predict it on an individual basis, not on the, on the basis of any of those factors. Uh, or I would probably say that if you're just going to compare two schools. However, deprivation of school area is beautifully correlated to exclusion rate overall across our system. So what that means is that, I mean, essentially, you know, the the graph I've put in there multiple times in the book, because I think it's crucial to understanding, you know, the kind of behaviors that lead to exclusion essentially breaks down all of our secondary schools into 10 levels of deprivation and then takes the average exclusion rate of each each of those 10 blocks. And the correlation is close to one and uh, sorry, well, minus one, but correlations can only be minus one or one. That's the most powerful that they can be. So it is an incredible correlation and what that says in our system is that it's not just that poverty matters it's not just that you know being affluent matters it's it's the steps in between that i think maybe we weren't quite aware of how strong that relationship is if you are an educator who has worked in a lot of different schools it might seem completely obvious to you that the higher the level of deprivation, the more behaviors you're going to find that are challenging perhaps the higher volume that you're going to find of challenging behaviors within that school. That might be completely you know evident to you um, but it's it's quite a shock when you see it across our system as such a, you know such a close pattern
1: and I you know I sometimes does that not mean are we not like you've already said sort of other othering people by sort of suggest you know it, it, does that not put in a situation which well you know the, the the parenting in the poorer families or you know they don't have the, the social skills or the the expectations um and, and these kind of things um do they have a part to play is that part of us doing the us and them you know it's
2: yeah well that goes back to what i was saying earlier you know when we don't know what to do we rely on dispositional judgment we would we rely on character judgment and when it's children if we don't feel comfortable judging you know their character we definitely i think on occasion judge the, the the parental character but i think you know one of the most interesting findings in terms of the chapter on poverty that i looked at is really what's predictable you know, if you actually look outside our bucket and you go, okay, so if you are looking at socioeconomic status, in terms of the research that's already out there, we can predict that there will be differences in memory, attention, language development hyperactivity, conduct problems, peer problems. And uh, there's a wonderful study by Goodman and Greg that that produces these incredible graphs. This is of a UK cohort um, that just kind of shows these stark associations across socioeconomic background for children. So I guess I would frame what that means for us in terms of this question. If you were a head teacher and you were working in a school and you felt confident you know, in terms of your behavior policy, that it's working well, that it's including all children, um, that it's, you know, what you wanted it to be, and you are then going to transfer to a different school, maybe several steps down the ladder in terms of deprivation. The question is, would you do anything differently? And if you would do anything differently, what would you do differently? And these are big, big, big questions for us to be looking at
1: yeah and I, and it has me stumped slightly because you know as a as an educator i like to believe that i have these things you know these high aspirations i you know i certainly subscribe to this idea of you know that we can have low expectations of of children we need you know we need to have high expectations of all but then also and do i need to change my expectations to meet their need does that make sense I, yeah. I, I'm torn slightly between to what to do there is it am I failing children I guess by accepting that they might swear because of their social um, economic background
2: yeah I mean as you can see we're right into the like huge philosophy <laughs> and yeah. and very difficult issues um firstly I would say that I mean, I think the most important thing is to have high aspirations in terms of every pupil and wish for them huge success and wish for them happy lives and successful developments and educational qualifications. You know, that's that's to me what it means to have high aspirations for each student. To expect the same standard across all students, whether that is academically or whether that is behaviourally, that is not evidence-informed, to put it politely that you, you know that is essentially sticking your head in the sand and it is a really difficult conversation and again it is a really emotive conversation as soon as you start connecting deprivation to behavior.
1: And and I think also you know it, it's you know we've talked a little bit and as I say we've skipped around around um, these bits but we talked about a head teacher going to work in a different school but does that mean that you know, are are we saying that teachers who choose to work, and I myself fall into this category, I I have always chosen to work in schools um, that have um, deprivation within their catchment. Um, That is what I wanted to do in teaching. But does that mean that I am accepting that I I will have to uh, receive different behaviour? Does that make sense? Do I have to then, as a teacher, say, actually, it is part of my job, to absorb some of this frustration, some of this anger, some of this stress from society that is coming into school?
2: I think there's no doubt that teachers who work with more vulnerable populations are absorbing more of that stress because all the evidence points to more of that stress being in not only the students lives but the lives of their parents as well which does influence their behavior um i won't reference the study but it you know in terms of transitioning into poverty one of the biggest factors that increase the odds of of uh children's behavior um like having behavioral problems in quote marks um was actually the increased stress that was you know uh, received by the mother so yes they are uh, but that work is so important and so crucial because what you're essentially doing is providing the most stable development the most supportive development for that young person's mind as you can in the places where that support is needed most
1: and I, but does that mean to teachers, we are saying, you know, and I I am at this teacher and I, you know, have been this the leader in these schools. Does that mean I, I have to say to staff then, you know, I understand you've been sworn at, but that is part of the job is, you know, should, should, should it, I don't know. I guess I'm asking a moral question where, you know, trying to impose them. I don't know. Should it be part of the job? is it expected can i say that at an individual level i think i'm you know i'm getting at it. it's a motive it's really painful
2: mm. it, it is it, it's a hard thing because harm exists harm exists between us as human beings it exists between adults and children children and children adults and adults and and we would all prefer you know, well, 99.9% of us would prefer to live in a world where that harm doesn't happen and and where we will never be intimidated in our role at work and we we will never, you know, kind of be assaulted or be sworn out or be disrespected. Um, I think part of the job is is a difficult term because it's an extraordinary in I think the right sense of the word part of the job and it does require extra support for the staff and that's a huge part of the last chapter of my book it's just in terms of okay so who's holding the trauma who's holding these children in in the 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 the, the situations where their development has been so disrupted and so chaotic and they've had so much adversity from a very young age a lot of these children it's teachers and support staff and school counselors and school nurses and and TAs and 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 lunch duty supervisors and actually if you do not look after them you cannot look after the staff and part of that is modeling and uh, being explicit about supportive responses because it will knock you you know, having a child swearing in your face will knock you. Now, it might happen more often in some schools than it does in other schools. But that means there needs to be much more support in the areas where it is much more likely to happen. And there needs to be a supportive response, whoever you are. It doesn't matter what level you are at.
1: And what I like about your description of that, and this would be reflected, you know, I've, I've as I say, you know, when I was working down in Hampshire, I worked very closely with... Um, some uh alternative provision uh, support, and also um I you know I I have um family and friends who are teachers, and people working in difficult schools. I do not see them as necessarily unhappy, and also I would say I I, I sometimes see them. Uh, less frustrated by bad behaviour particularly people working in uh, alternative provision but some of that is because they are receiving things like supervision from mental health nurses they are receiving support in as you say dealing with this onslaught of trauma that they're Mm. kind of collecting and and supporting and and helping co-regulate or even just hearing about some of the children's lives
2: For sure. And that's definitely something that I've talked about, you know, in the text. And I I think I gave the example of, okay, so I was running an an internal alternative provision and I was with the students for most of the day. And, you know, I was there with students who had post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, who self-harmed, who may have been had suicidal ideation, uh, even children who'd sexually abused other children in their history. And, And and actually I was with them for this huge amount of time and i kind of bitterly resented the fact that i didn't get supervision um that the mental health clinician that they went and saw for an hour a week you know did get supervision but i was living with them during during the school day and obviously that's nothing compared to the toll it can take on on their you know parents and carers and families Uh, so you know, it does still blow my mind, the situations that educators find themselves in and what they're dealing with and what they hear. And And I mentioned, you know, kind of seeing a child in front of me actually relive a traumatic experience. Um, and that's still with me today, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it is incredibly hard. And, and without that support, it does worry me that, you know, people are going to burn out. Um, or, you know, experience what, what is termed compassion fatigue, which is essentially secondary traumatic stress. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a couple of areas that I explore in the final chapter for sure.
1: Um, and, you know, I'm going to posit a, 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 a possibly a difficult, a contentious question, maybe something that we wouldn't want to face as a profession.
2: Because all the questions up until this point have been really low level, I, yeah?
1: Listen, I, you know, I told you, this is a hot... Normally, you know, you should, last week I was talking about reading dogs in school. You should have come on for that one. It's lovely. We're talking about puppies. Oh, do I listen had, to a bit, yeah. Someone had a reading chicken. Oh, it's lovely. But, you know, this week, where if you will write a, write a book about the hard stuff, you know, mm-hmm. we'll have to have you come back on to talk about something else. Okay, so here it is. Um, the purpose of an exclusion for some people... OK, and I know you talk a little bit about how we frame pros and AP to mainstream children. But for some staff in schools, they will see that a child uh, ha- should receive almost an ongoing punishment through detri- detriment to their education because of something they have done. They, they you know, it is they, they shouldn't be here. They need to go somewhere. And when they go somewhere, it shouldn't be fun. Does that
2: yeah. make sense? Okay. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to find a polite way of <laughs> responding to that. Um, so I think anyone who who wants to investigate that further, a good place to start would be actually looking at incarceration and looking at how unsuccessful it is and, and how poorly it maps to crime, uh, uh, you know, and, and the recidivism rates, the, the kind of reoccurrence of offending behaviour. Um, that we have, uh, which I think are higher in youth prison than they are in adult prisons. Um, I'll give you another example, um, sentences of, of kind of under six months, uh, prison sentences of under six months um, lead to more recidivism than using community-based sanctions. So this idea, logical as it might seem, that if you punish people hard enough, that will cure the problem, unfortunately there is a wealth of evidence that demonstrates that that is an incorrect belief
1: um yeah i mean you know i i I had to frame that like as a as 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 a question because it's something i hear and certainly i hear people use words and and luckily not necessarily about my own provision now but certainly of like you know if you keep that up you'll end up at the prue you know if you don't Mm. you know if you don't sort of like this is like like that is bad. And, and personally, as someone who works in provisions that, that work with children like this, I kind of feel, find that a little upsetting, a little insulting, because I, I think quite a lot of what I do, you know, not in an arrogant way, but I think, you know, we are meeting children's needs in a different way. But-
2: yeah, there is no, that the punishment of a prue. sorry, the purpose of a prue is not punishment. Now, you know, I think what we're talking about here is an emotional response. And I can empathize with that emotional response because it comes back to that notion of harm and distress uh, and people, you know, wishing a kind of retribution. But no, that is not the work that's done in any prue I've been in, for sure. And actually, when you look at even at the prison system, you know, there's, at least half a chapter on the amount of adversity and trauma that's in the lives of our incarcerated children, Uh, the majority now who have come through the care system. And what is realised, even at the top levels, is that prisons actually have to start becoming a more trauma-informed place. They have to start becoming a more rehabilitative place because you cannot punish someone out of their trauma. You cannot distress someone out of their behaviour if it is caused by stress
1: and but we do hear you know we, we hear that of um, possibly lower outcomes for children who are excluded or a exclusion to prison pipeline is is that something that's backed up by data is it something that's is there cause and effect there is it just correlation
2: yeah so what, what I'd say about that is is where I've got to is that it's that's a nuanced question we do have a pipeline in this country uh, but it a very clear pipeline that is in full public view. Um, It's just most people aren't aware of it. And that is the pipeline that runs from the care system to prison. Uh, Whether or not there is a school-to-prison pipeline is more complicated. So what I try to do within the book is I go, okay, so let's define what that pipeline would look like, essentially borrowed a definition, a set of definitions from the United States because I believe that's where the the term was coined originally, and then just try to look at the data and go, you know, what what maps to this definition of a pipeline? I think one of the areas that is certainly an issue is uh, the disproportionate um justice involvement and disproportionate exclusion of some racial and ethnic groups um and actually it's particularly stark when you look at their experience of the justice system uh, really really worrying data hmm.
1: and uh, you know i'm not familiar with the data in this country but i certainly have heard of data in the us that would reflect something similar that there you know that there is a disproportionate number of incarcerated people from certain minority groups
2: yeah, I mean, you know, I I plucked a, a whole set of examples, and and the youth justice board itself has been very open over years and years and years that there is a huge issue in terms of who is entering the secure estate, who is entering, you know, who's coming into contact with the youth justice system, and actually, um, it is unfair, and there's no other way around that. For the same offence, uh, overall, people should be receiving the same. Sanctions, and they are not, and that is racially biased. So there is no running away from that, and that is actually accepted in the sense of we has been acknowledged that is there. Uh, David Lammy um, did the Lammy review, and unfortunately, so few of his recommendations are have at this point been put into place. So we are not moving anywhere near fast enough. So I guess what I'm saying is my journey to investigate the school to prison pipeline. Actually, led slightly outside of schools um, in terms of the care system yep. and the justice system.
1: And we've had a text in just from t- listener TSCW, who just said, um, "I don't have up to date figures, but I was reading a review from a few years back on the Prison Reform Trust, and seventy percent of young offenders were known to social care, and forty on a on CP, so I'm, I'm guessing child protection. Um, that was a few years back." Um, so that sounds like what you're saying, where, you know, the overlap between school exclusions and social care and social situations, there's a, a lot of overlap between factors and they're not necessarily directly causing one or directly predictable or another at the, the granular level.
2: It, it it would always be incredibly challenging to pick out one specific yeah. cause. But I think you're right. The point is, is that these vulnerable groups are the same you know you're talking about the same issues fundamentally yeah.
1: now we are going to go to um hear from our sponsors we're going to go to the news and then we will be back uh, oh just after the tech update as well which i love we, we have a little tech update in there as well so it's about seven minutes now cat that gives you seven minutes to either a make a cup of coffee and and possibly drink it if you, if you make it with cold water i guess or <laughs> b, <laughs> b when we come back, we're going to kind of do some hopes, some dreams. How I always like to end the show of you know, if anyone's listening who has the ability to change, who wants to be part of a change, of how maybe things can improve, how maybe how we we can look at things differently. We're going to, we're going to give our thoughts on that. Is that okay?
2: I've got seven minutes to plan that. Fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fine. You know, who, you know, why not? Why not? All right, we will All see right. you on the other side. See you in a bit. Good.
0: Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more.
3: Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wundle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk
0: Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com.
3: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion, www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
4: Pupils at Belmont Grosvenor Prep School in Harrogate took part in a sound bath experience as part of the school's well-being programme. The school was visited by Sudeshna Sarkar, a sound mediation practitioner, who ran a series of sound workshops during Children's Mental Health Week. A sound bath is a meditative experience where you lie down and are bathed in different sounds. All pupils had a chance to play the gongs, Himalayan bowls, chimes, crystal bowls and other instruments before experiencing a brief sound bath. Ms Sarkar said she was overwhelmed by the positive responses to the workshop from the pupils. She said, participation in a sound bath requires no prior experience and is an excellent tool for children and adults alike to alleviate the symptoms of anxiety, stress, depression, poor sleep and a range of conditions affecting the nervous system. In Northern Ireland, Schools Minister Robin Walker has said schools must teach LGBT content and that there are no plans to rule out teaching about trans issues. He told the Commons Education Committee, we do need to talk about the world as it is, adding that trans people were a protected group under the Equality Act who needed support. He said, we want schools to be able to support pupils including the small number of pupils who may have gender identity issues and may need support in that respect. And it's important that if they approach members of staff, they can be signposted to the right advice and support. He said that issues around sex and gender had to be taught in an age-appropriate way and there were some really complex legal issues to do with the Equality Act. The Government is working with the Equality and Human Rights Commission to explore this. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech
5: briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at fake news and scammers. We all know what a scammer is, but do we really know what fake news is? The NSPCC website explains fake news in an easy-to-understand way if you want to look a little deeper. However, basically it's disinformation as opposed to misinformation. Misinformation is shared without knowledge or intent to harm. Disinformation is shared intentionally. Fake news is nothing new, but for most it's seen as a propaganda or a political tool to influence opinion. However, it's becoming more popular with scammers. I decided to see what happens when you actually follow a fake news advert. I've noticed recently popular social media apps and search engine adverts encouraging investment in cryptocurrency. One ad caught my eye as I was looking at the news headlines on a popular browser. It read, Elon Musk invests 12 million in a new trading platform. I trusted the search engine, so I clicked on the link. Because let's face it, anything Elon invests in is worth looking at. I was taken to a website showing how the company Bitcoin Motion had created an investment robot that invests bitcoin climbs and sells when bitcoin falls because bitcoin is a massively volatile currency you can earn a large profit in a very short time it sounds almost too good to be true on the site there's a report where elon himself tells a popular american news presenter to invest 250 dollars and within eight minutes she's made a profit of hundred dollars scrolling down there were testimonials from dragon's den money supermarket and other well-known established names Next, a button to fill in a simple web form to sign up. I spent some time researching Bitcoin Motion. It was clearly fake. All endorsers had published statements saying they were nothing to do with it. So, I signed up. Within 30 seconds, I had a phone call from another company called PhenoFX. Strangely though, there was a distinctive call transfer noise, a silence before the connection. Why, if they phoned me? Hello? Hello? Hi, today, am I speaking to Mr. Steve? Steve, what? That's me. Steve, you're speaking only from uh, you know, back. How you this morning, And I was called Mr Steve. I should have hung up. Anyway, I was then time pressured so I didn't miss out to give the big long number across my credit card, which I didn't do. So I was sent a WhatsApp message with a secure payment link. Again, I was pushed to open it on my cell phone and pay. I made my excuses and ended the call. A further five messages and calls, some from London, some from Sheffield came, never leaving a message. The WhatsApp saying, I see you've not made your transaction, I'm calling to assist you. The recording I have is my final call with the supposed investment company. On the 20th of March at 8pm on Tom Rogers' show, we're going to listen to this and discuss the topic. Why not join us? I'm going to leave you with a final thought. I was told to look at the website and see there was a padlock showing it was safe. The padlock and certificate is proof your connection is encrypted. It's not proof of how trustworthy the person on the other end is. Anyone can buy an SSL certificate. Please be careful. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was two minute tech
0: two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio live from swansea this is the twilight show with nathan ginn on teachers talk radio tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation download the podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio.
1: Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Swansea. Welcome to The Twilight Show here on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Nathan Gean. And I'm joined by Kat Stern, author of The Excludables, uh, Understanding the Children We Exclude and Why. Welcome back, Cat. Hi, Nathan hi um now i'm going to read out a little tweet it wasn't directed at us but it is about exclusion it's from uh tom rogers at rogers history and it says um there is a huge pressure on hate teachers at the moment to never exclude even when kids assault staff abuse staff and so on why why isn't the protection of teachers a priority from those on high um And there ain't an education without a teacher to educate. Now, we have touched a little on this. I just wanted to get your opinions. I'm assuming something has uh, kicked off on Twitter, as it always does, about exclusion at the moment. But, um, yeah, he's saying that there's pressure to never exclude, even with assault.
0: I
2: mean... You know, that's that is someone's opinion. Uh, and um, I think, you know, each head teacher gets to speak for what kind of pressures they feel under. Um, one of the things I noted right at the start of the book is that essentially the biggest drop we've had in permanent exclusions was in the first two years that the data was published or across the first three years. Uh, Ever since then exclusions uh, have gone down and then come up again Uh, but in comparison we've never had a drop like that. Now the underlying factors that are associated with exclusion didn't change during that period so I have a hypothesis that it was the fact that the data was being published, that Ofsted were perhaps paying more attention to exclusions, that triggered a reduction. But that goes back to the first thing I think we talked about, and that is that does that mean that all the other children stayed in mainstream education? The reality is, no, it does not mean that.
1: Hmm. And, I, you know, I, I would personally agree with uh, your point on that, that you know, maybe, but from my point of view, that kind of suggests, and it is a sad thing to suggest. And, and I've toyed around with the wording of this when I've talked about kind of um, writing e- explanations about how to help children, and I always come back to this word, survive mainstream school. And it suggests then that there is this le- minimum level of exclusion that our system is set up to tolerate, to accept. That we are, you know, that we are going to sit around this, um, you know, one in a thousand, two in a thousand exclusion rate, and that that is what the, the system will tolerate, if that makes sense.
2: Well, I think it's, it is in a sense, I understand what you mean by tolerate, because, you know, if we dramatically increase the number of exclusions, well, we don't have, a, unless we have a dramatic increase in the number of places within alternative provision, that, that's not sustainable, is it? So, yes, there is a certain capacity built within our system at the moment, from my understanding, where we're really lacking is special school places. Um, And local authorities are ending up paying a lot of money to place in independent special schools uh, because there aren't enough um, uh, state funded ones.
1: Um, And I would say that was my experience in North Hampshire, where I worked, that a lot of the people who we would be talking with, there there was a lot of um, independent work going on um, within this area.
2: Yeah. So I, I think in terms of our, our capacity, that's definitely an area to look at. I mean, you're right. There's a kind of norm that gets developed. And I do think the norm is about, you know, kind of like you said, two in a thousand at a secondary, one in a thousand across the system, in terms of what people are used to seeing. Um, what is hidden by that is a the children who are not in that data but who are missing in on many levels missing um and you know the second part of that is okay but let's dig into this who are we excluding and and is this morally the right choice Mm. um and that's where this book has such a a wealth of information you know that says mm-hmm I mean, it's actually fairly predictable where who is, you know, what kind of places are going to have more exclusions. And if it's predictable, then we need to build that predictability into
1: our responses. And I think that's where I'm kind of thinking the other direction is that how is it possible for us to get it down and to to, to less exclusions? And if so, what would you think we would need to be doing to reduce um, exclusion rates further? You know, is is it is it even possible? I know we can ignore the extremes. I guess where there will always be possibly a, an extreme case that can cannot be predicted. But it, you know, if there is predictability in this, there must be something that I can do as a school leader that I can I can change to, to yes. reduce the chance.
2: Yeah, because you know, I think you're looking at it in exactly the right way. Because if you are predicting that okay, children with mental health difficulties in your school are more likely to be excluded, uh, children who come from the most deprived backgrounds, uh, you know, there, there are ways of of looking at it and going, yes, if we can start adding resources to this area, if we can start thinking more deeply, if we can get in extra training, if we can look at this, can we include these children? Uh, and work with them in a more positive way. And that's actually, you know, what I think a, a lot of schools, you know, and a lot of teachers and head teachers and SLTs are trying to do it anyway. Um, I would say that we are always in education behind where we need to be because I think that, you know, the research that's out there does seem to take a long time to filter in to our school system when it comes to behavior we are very set in our ways i think for some people you know the way that people talk about behavior in schools is exactly the same way they would have talked about behavior in schools you know 50 years ago uh, and that you know i do struggle with that that the level of our discourse on behavior in education absolutely needs to improve in my opinion
1: um and OK, so we, we come to the end and I did put you on the spot and give you not a lot of time to sort of consider things you would want to do. You've kind of generalised a little bit there about things that we can do to kind of predict and put resources in place for general things. But if you could give one piece of advice to someone having, you know, what would you want someone to take away having read your book?
2: Hmm, I think... We okay. So the biggest uh, takeaway from the book would be that the development of a child's mind, the context in which it develops, has a huge influence on their behaviour. That it is not a uh, character that we we flip to disposition too easily, um, and that actually that, you know, their brain has developed in that way for a reason. Uh, That is not the same as calling it as an excuse, as if, you know, you can excuse every behavior. Absolutely not. Um, But understanding that is key to how to change it. And uh, our incredible brains have this wonderful thing called neuroplasticity. And when teachers relate to children in the best ways they know how, for example... Um, that actually is is something that is a hugely protective factor for, you know, for the most vulnerable children and something that can start to reverse uh, some of that development and create a more positive uh, neuronal development. So, you know, what we do in schools in terms of building resilience can be hugely powerful. Unfortunately, we can also compound harm. Mm. And where we are, consistently sanctioning a student when they are in detention every single day after school, uh, when they are excluded, uh, you know, in kind of in more informal ways than a permanent exclusion, you know, excluded from activities, isolated, placed in removal rooms. These things do compound harm. And uh, we are effectively, I think, turning a blind eye because it is either what we know how to do or it is because we have a false belief that that is actually improving the situation. But there is really no evidence outside of education and, and there's not evidence inside education that that is effective in my opinion.
1: Cool. Wow. You know, sorry, I was just nodding along, making notes. Furrow <laughs> answer. You know, it's been lovely to talk to you about this. You know, I'm, I'm reflecting on my own practice as well. As I say, you know, I, I work in a in an alternative provision um, attached to a school and I the thing that I see most often for me is that they you know and it is interventionist and I feel bad about that that I am removing and we we do it on site we keep them you know it's uniform we we have lessons over at mainstream mainstream teachers come and join us all of those things to try and keep that because it is so important but I often describe that the care and the pastoral support that that is required repeatedly and uh, consistently and I forget the term in your book but I was quoting it to, to someone today about the trust that needs to be repaired and built with epistemic start. trust epistemic trust yeah yeah and that was the biggest takeaway for me was this idea that you know particularly how easily that can be damaged or how the cognitive dissonance that can go on when you're hearing from different people uh, about what what's going to happen to you and that was a big takeaway for me to think about how we can support repairing that
2: yeah, fundamentally, we learn from each other, and and so social learning is really how our minds have developed. Uh, and unfortunately, um, if a mind, particularly early on, develops in a in a dangerous context, uh, in a, it, where it's actually more protective for that mind to not trust. Um, that has really, really long lasting consequences. Uh, It literally delays development, it it delays learning. And we absolutely have children in our school system who find it very difficult to trust us and that we shouldn't be taking that personally. It's not personal, but but as you are doing in your alternative provision and wonderful staff, you know, in in mainstream and AP are doing all the time, building that trust is often a slow, ongoing process but it is life-changing.
1: Right. Well, I'm afraid, you know, I, I know it's been hard and it's been tough going, but I think it's been really worthwhile and hopefully for people listening back to this to kind of hear this um, sort of talked through and talked out. So thank you so much for coming on.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure, Nathan. Thank you for inviting me.
1: <laughs> Fabulous. And I will say, as we say here in Wales, Nostar, which is good night. So Nostar Nostar. <laughs> Nostar. See, a little bit of Welsh as we do it. And uh, don't forget, if you are listening live later on, we've got Alex Wright on The Late Show, Toby and Ed on The Late Late Show talking about school trips. Good night, everyone, from here in Swansea. Good night, Kat. Nostar. And uh, we'll see you all next time. OK, take care. ta